Time once again, everyone, for the Talking Tide podcast. I'm Chase Goodbread of NFL.com and Crimson Cover Television. I'm joined, as I am twice weekly throughout the fall, by Travis Ryer, the senior analyst at BannaOnline.com, and also the daily radio host of Southern Fried Sports, which you can catch at 100.9 FM in Tuscaloosa weekdays, 11 a.m. to noon. The Talking Tide podcast available to you at our web host, first and foremost, at Podbean.com, also various apps including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn, the Twitter feed, talking underscore Tide. And with the formalities out of the way and after a week off from the Crimson Tide's Idle Week, Travis, talking Tide back into it to preview this Alabama LSU game, biggest game of the season by far, uh, number one versus number two if you're looking at the AP poll. Uh, maybe not one, two, if you're looking at a different poll, but uh, the biggest game in the country by a long shot. And we're going to have a lot of fun talking about this one. You know, we typically, I'm springing this on you, by the way, we typically close the show kind of breaking down the rest of the SEC. Well, the rest of the SEC schedule is dog meat this year, this, this particular week. And so uh, on the back end of the show tonight, I thought we'd, change the pace a little bit and talk a little Alabama LSU history recent history nostalgia maybe some Alabama LSU games of the past 10 to 15 years maybe that have struck us both as uh, watershed moments in what has become a pretty serious rivalry but uh, one versus two in the AP poll Travis and uh Goodness gracious, the president coming in, security being tightened down, celebrities sure to be all over the sideline. It is going to be locked in on CBS at 2.30. Yeah, and a lot of the big money crowd on Saturday probably not going to be happy. They like to fly in on those private jets out there at Tuscaloosa Regional Airport, Chase. But uh, what I'm seeing are reports on Wednesday night that the airspace there is going to be sort of shuttered for just uh, President Trump and and that Air Force Two or Air Force One. I think it's supposedly going to be the smaller uh, of the two because it's actually going to be the vice president's jet because the runway there at Tuscaloosa Regional can't facilitate the big bird for the president. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's going to logistically, logistically Saturday, I think that's going to be the the biggest news other than uh, Trump attending the game itself is how it's going to impact getting in and out of the venue. I know we've already talked about it, right? I think me and you, we're talking about getting down there four or five hours, a, a good four or five hours before kickoff. Alabama has changed sort of the opening of the gates on game day for this week to 1130, which is three hours prior to kickoff. So if you're coming, you better plan accordingly. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be at the game. I'll be in the press box. I don't trust the Secret Service to get me in there if I show up at 145, right? Not going to happen. So, yeah, and typically with tip, with normal Alabama security, the president not around, uh, I could show up at 145 for a 230 kick and – get navigate my way through media yeah. security which is a diff, which is its own ball game uh and be in there just fine uh for this one yeah i'll be showing up way early it's gonna be nuts but we'll i guess we'll turn to football quickly 
because uh, there's there's plenty of time. We may go a little long tonight to talk about this one. It, it is a monster game. But uh, from a football standpoint, Tua Tungvaloa's injury, one of the biggest storylines entering this clash between Alabama and LSU, Travis. He's had some time off in the neighborhood of 20 days, uh, sat out the Arkansas game as Mac Jones got his first career start this past week, Alabama Idol. So, uh, Tua Valoa has been able to sit in uh, neutral gear for a while, but he's actually this is not his first week back at practice. He actually was able to practice a little bit last week. So the expectation, as we podcast here this evening, uh, roughly 72 hours before kick, is that Tua Tonga Valoa is going to be good to go. Yeah, and as recent as Wednesday's practice here uh, in the last little bit, we were out there again for that condensed, condensed media viewing opportunity. Uh, In a little bit, we did see it it pointed more towards Tua Tagovailoa in all likelihood being able to go Saturday against LSU. And some of the stuff we saw Wednesday was interesting, Chase, because as brief as it was, uh, it entailed some of that RPO action. We got to get us some of that RPO, Pappy. That RPO action that is such a big part of this offense, and Tua looked like he was navigating that stuff pretty well. Um, not just in terms of you know the the RPO, but you know the the action off of it, but also climbing up into the pocket and making some throws. So from a mobility standpoint, which is obviously the primary concern for Tua, both in terms of being able to protect himself against a good LSU defense. Uh, but also make the kind of plays that we've grown accustomed to seeing from him. I thought it was a good sign on Wednesday, albeit a brief, a brief opportunity to check him out. What I'm going to be looking for with Tua Tungvaloa is is not, I'm not going to be paying attention so much to whether or not he can tuck the ball and maybe move the chains with his feet. That's not going to be what I'm watching for. What I'm going to be looking for is can he hop around the pocket with the quickness that we're used to seeing when he's right physically and get the ball out to secondary targets uh, effectively and accurately. Whereas if he's not as mobile within the pocket, and we've seen that too, right? Uh, Toward the end of last season, the Mississippi State game, when he got dinged up and thereafter, we've seen what Tua Tungvaloa looks like when he's more stationary in the pocket because his ankle isn't quite right. Uh, if his if his recovery from this high ankle sprain and it's it's you know the the recovery from that with this tightrope procedure is kind of a story all in itself because this tightrope thing is a new it's a relatively new procedure that allows players to come back from high ankle sprains in about half the time uh, as maybe was the case three or four years ago, but how how quickly and how effectively he's able to move into the pocket and and throw the ball. Uh, To me, that's going to be as important as whether or not he can tuck it and move the sticks. Yeah, it is. Um, You know, it's kind of a a two-way thing with that tightrope procedure, not only in terms of expediting his recovery for right now, but big picture-wise, Chase, when he moves on to the National Football League, An extended benefit of the procedure is that he'll be less likely, from my understanding, to 
and endure or suffer another one of these kind of injuries kind of takes care of it from that per- perspective um big picture wise but yeah obviously uh talking about just this week and that's why again on wednesday seeing him do some things from a mobility standpoint you know moving crisply up into a pocket making throws improvising getting himself in position to make plays now, that's a big part of his game now Something that we've learned this week from the LSU perspective that might help that chase is that Michael Divinity Jr., the starting outside linebacker for the LSU Tigers, has left the team, at least on a temporary basis. He will not be in the game on Saturday. Now, you'll still have Caleb on Chason uh, at that outside linebacker position, but you won't have both of those guys to deal with at the same time in obvious passing situations. So protecting Tua in terms of edge rushers might be a, a good bit easier than it would be otherwise. Yeah, Divinity, a guy who gives LSU some experience both inside and outside at linebackers, so his versatility being absent for this game, definitely a factor as well. Uh, leading sacker on this squad with only three sacks tells you a little yeah. bit about whether or not, you know, has Chase on gotten home like people expected to get home? I, I would say not, given that Divinity is is exiting as the squad sack leader with three sacks three quarters of the way through the season. And hadn't really been a full-time guy for him either. You know, he's had issues throughout the season prior to his departure this week. So it's been in somewhat of a limited sample size for Divinity. You know, Chasan's coming off that knee injury from a year ago. Sustained it in the season opener in 2018 against Miami. Um, there's been flashes of the guy that we thought we were going to see last year before the injury. What I've seen as much as anything is a guy that if he can, with that first step, get an edge with his speed, he's got an opportunity to be a real problem. What I haven't seen as of yet, at least not enough of from Chase on is more than just one move, more than just being a speed guy. Can he hit you with a counter move? Can he convert speed to power? in his pass rush. Um, you know, that's something we're going to find out on Saturday, but I kind of look at it from this perspective. You know, if Alabama was going into this game Saturday down Terrell Lewis or Anthony Jennings, we damn sure take note of that, wouldn't we? And, 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 and I'm not saying that, that divinity or, or Chasan right now are to the level of, of Terrell Lewis as a, as a pure pass rusher and perhaps even to that of Anthony Jennings. But, uh, I think with all the two, uh, uh, talk and in, in the situation involving that ankle is it's kind of flown under the radar a little bit this week that that you know uh, you got divinity that's going to be out and Grant Delpit the All American safety's been dealing with a bit of an ankle injury since the Auburn game. And Terrell, you know, one of the things that Terrell you brought up speed to power to me speed to power is what Terrell Lewis does best. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's and, and this is his first – this is the first time we've really seen Terrell Lewis as a full-time starter, healthy game-to-game, delivering production. Uh, he's had a lot of injuries over the course of his career. Uh, back in August when we were looking at Terrell Lewis, I kind of compared him career-wise to Christian Miller. Uh, just to turn you – know, both guys with mm-hmm. – pretty special pass rush talents, but Christian Miller was a guy who, because of injuries, really wasn't able to put it together until his last year. Kind of look at Terrell Lewis in the same way, although 
Lewis always, I think, had a little more upside than Miller. He has. And, again, the, the most recent situation involving that knee injury um, from a little more than a year ago now. Uh, and, I, and I, by the way, I think you're going to see a lot. I think you're going to see a lot of Terrell Lewis and Anthony Jennings on the field together. And that means even on early downs, when Alabama's in its nickel, you know this, Chase, a lot of times when Alabama on first down is in its nickel package against three wide receiver set, you know, they'll still go with three defensive linemen and, a, and one outside linebacker. We've seen more of late where Alabama on early downs in the nickel has still gone with what looks more like a pass rush group because there's two outside linebackers out there in Terrell Lewis and Anthony Jennings to go along with, say, Raquan Davis and DJ Dale. I think we're going to continue to see that on Saturday, too. And and part of why you can do that is that in Terrell Lewis, a guy who hasn't played in this series since 2016, he's missed the last two games against the, the LSU Tigers. Terrell Lewis goes 253. Anthony Jennings goes 265 or so. You got enough, you got enough ass, for lack of a better way of putting it, at outside linebacker with those guys. You couldn't do that, in other words, with, say, a Christian Miller and Anthony Jennings. But Terrell Lewis at 255, to go along with a 265 Anthony Jennings, you can anchor well enough on early downs, I think, to be able to get away with it. That's not a lack of the best way to – that's the best way to put it. <laughs> <for> Terrell <laughs> Lewis. Uh, and, and I think, you know, Lewis getting after Burrow, Chase on getting over – getting after two of those are going to be two big factors in the game although what i think is really interesting about this matchup particularly when you look at the hist- the recent history of the series contrast this game with the 2011 game and that's the one people talk about that's the one people kind of harken back to here in 2019 uh, Al- alabama dropped a nine to six game to lsu in 2011 Two teams that had a ton of NFL talent, most of it on both sides, on the defensive side of the ball. And eight years later, and and by the way, the last time a number one played a number two in the AP poll in the regular season was Alabama LSU in 2011. Now, there have been a handful of postseason games since then that have been ones and twos. Uh, including Alabama's 21-0 win over LSU in the Sugar Bowl later that season. But the one versus two in the regular season hadn't happened since 2011 in Tuscaloosa. Now, eight years later, back in Tuscaloosa, it's number one versus number two again. But in 2011, Travis, it was all about defense. And in 2019, for both teams, it's more about offense. It is an entirely different way of going about offense than did those LSU and Alabama teams from eight years ago. I mean, you saw a lot of two tight end sets back in 2011. You saw uh, two back sets, fullbacks uh, for LSU were a big part of what Les Miles liked to do during his time in Baton Rouge. So you saw phone booth football throwback. back in 2000. Yeah, phone booth throwback football, tight for, tighter formations. You know, what you're going to see on Saturday, LSU like Alabama now, 
can formation in some ways that even with three wide receivers on the field can spread you out, put a back out wide in Najee Harris. LSU will do the same thing with Clyde Edwards-Halar. And all of that, a lot of times, is window dressing to get the matchups that the defense wants. And a lot of times these days, Chase, it's at those inside receiver spots, man. I mean, teams have figured out, you know, if we've got depth at wide receiver, and even if we don't, we'll take our number one guy, put him at the slot, and now we've got him matched up against a third corner or a hybrid type like Shaheem Carter, like Kerry Vincent Jr. for LSU, and suddenly you've got a great opportunity to hit explosive plays, and you know, that's what LSU's doing now with Joe Brady in there as the passing game coordinator coming in from the New Orleans Saints. But, you know, I say all this, Chase, and at the same time, I won't be surprised if if the running backs, Edwards, Halar, Najee Harris, are a lot more impactful by the end of the day Saturday than a lot of people are sort of anticipating from that area of the game. What about that 65 number on the over-under? My goodness, that yeah. sounded a I don't. To me. Yeah. Sounded a little high. I, I don't. I don't like it. I don't. I think. I think it's going to go under that. I, I don't. I think the winner gets somewhere in the low thirties. The loser somewhere probably in the twenties. I, I don't see sixty-five. If, if there's one thing I would feel decently comfortable about taking a swing at the man with, it would be under the sixty-five. Although playing the under, you, know, you talk about one of the. The, the probably the leading causes in death for males ages 17 to 28 it's playing the under right i mean nothing nothing is more stressful than pulling for the under in college football the man the in game in games like this big games one versus two the biggest the man doesn't throw jabs he throws power punches yeah he does and he'll let you and it's kind of like the ticket man for alabama this year the ticket man he has been retro Muhammad Ali with the rope-a-dope. You know, he rope-a-doped everybody for two months. And now in about the ninth round of a 12-round fight, you know, with LSU this weekend, he's come off those ropes magically. And here he comes with the left and rights, you know, and you can't, you just can't keep your hands up, you know. So, let's turn, yeah. Let's turn our attention to the ticket man uh, yeah. for, for a brief moment now. I went on SeatGeek.com today. The, the ticket man is getting 270, 275 rock bottom. Uh, and by tomorrow morning, or even, certainly by Saturday morning, I would expect the, the rock bottom is going to be 300 plus. Uh, but face value in the cheap seats is in the neighborhood of $90. So, right, I, I think it's fair to say as we podcast here midweek that the man for, for the moment is getting triple face. Yeah, for, he is. For these tickets. Well, triple face is a big number, uh, but the man's been taking a beating, as we know, for a while this season. I think if you're if you're a ticket man, can you save the season with one game at triple face? Maybe if you've got a lot of volume to move, you can. Uh, but if you're just a guy who's trying to claw back on your own on your own season ticket package, Triple Face ain't going to cut it this year. No, no, and, and I've gotten word that you know that those zone tickets, especially this weekend, you know those north and south end zone zone where you got the 
access to the club level and the lick-a-lockas and all those things. I've heard of three going for a grand total of 3600 1200 apiece for some zone pick tickets this week. Now, that may have been... It's kind of like the, the Vegas man. It's all about when you get down, Chase. So if you sold your tickets, if you were in the selling market and you sold them before news of Donald Trump making the visit Saturday, you may have done better because in, in, in talking with some people that, that are involved in this, uh, communicating with some people that are involved in that ticket market far greater and are far more dependent on it than I am, you know, the overriding belief when all this talk about Donald Trump visiting Tuscaloosa on Saturday went down was that the ticket market would go down with it, that tickets would be, uh, you know, uh, cheaper uh, as a result uh, of, of, the, of the presidential visit because logistically, uh, some people just wouldn't want to deal with everything, the security and all those things. So, you know, I'm looking at Seat Geek right now too, Good Bread, and I'm looking at a single ticket anywhere in the stadium right now and what i'm seeing tonight is a single ticket at 386 and that's section u that's the upper uh upper four row uh section pp and that's row 29 so you're up there man you're up there for 386 dollars that's quadruple face yeah i mean i i I, I was on seat gate six hours ago and was yeah. seeing and was seeing price a few tickets under three hundred, but not yeah. ma- but not many. Right. So right. I guess it's it's shooting north. the The bottom, the rock bottom ticket price. Is Some, somebody may have undercut the market big time, and they went quick. Yeah. And now, now we're what we're looking at is more of the reality of uh, you know somewhere in the neighborhood of four hundred dollars for a get in. The man's getting the man's knocking a couple of teeth loose. Yeah. So he, well, you know, I mean, he, he's taken about three standing eights, you know, <laughs> this season. He's, he, he's lost about four 10-8 rounds, you know. Uh, so, uh, he looks like Jake LaMotta against Sugar Ray Robinson and Raging Bull in that one fight right now. So, uh, yeah, you couldn't put me down, Ray. You couldn't put me down. It's awesome. My, uh... My wife's got a pair. Uh, she, she she has graciously uh, donated that pair to my son and his girlfriend. Wow, that's I, true love. I, I don't know necessarily that my son has quite the appreciation and understanding of what a gift this yeah. is, you know. But, yeah. he, but he will. I'll let him know when he gets yeah. there. Well, pull up in that uh, Seat Geek app and show him, you know, the gift. <laughs> And uh, he'll get it then, but no, it it, it is it is. I, I don't I don't know if my wife would be such a gracious mother uh, to her to our three if uh, she was in that position. So good for Michelle. The Talking Tide podcast at Podbean.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. The Twitter feed, Talking Underscore Tide. We're gonna take a quick time out to thank a couple of sponsors. Uh, that keep us on the pod waves here at Talking Tide, starting with North River Dental Associates, the charter sponsor of Talking Tide. The phone number is 752-3506. You can also make an appointment at NorthRiverDentist.com. Dr. Jack Smalley and his professional staff of dental hygienists, hygienists will get you taken care of. 
regardless of your dental needs, porcelain veneers, teeth whitening services, endodontics, oral surgery, cosmetic dentistry, pediatric dentistry, whatever the case may be, NorthRiverDentist.com is the place to go. You find them at 1100 Fairfax Park off McFarland Boulevard in Northport, conveniently located uh, right there off McFarland. Uh, short weights, professional staff, it's NorthRiverDentist.com and Dr. Jack Smalley. We also want to thank Session Cocktails and Spirits, uh, the fantastic new cocktail bar in downtown Tuscaloosa, 2221 University Boulevard. If you're going to be in town for the LSU game this weekend, make sure you get by 2221 University Session Cocktails and Spirits, located right between the Children's Hands-On Museum and Rock and Roll Sushi. It's easy to find. Hunter Wiggins and his staff of bartenders are the most talented around. They've got a deep and tasty menu of signature cocktails. They've also got a great selection of wines and craft beers, but the signature cocktails are definitely the way to go. Might have had a, a gimlet a little earlier this evening. Yes. And uh, it was top of the line. They've got a peanut butter whiskey shooter, Travis, uh, that, that I've got my hands on uh, in the recent past. That uh, is hard to beat as well. So yeah, session cocktails and spirits and and Hunter Wiggins get over and check them out on University Boulevard. You know, with the logistics situation being what it's going to be in all likelihood Saturday, I'm going to give you a couple of other places in downtown Tuscaloosa where you can post up. Really, first thing on Saturday morning, go ahead, get into town, brick and spoon downtown Tuscaloosa at Timerson Square, opens at 7 a.m. Get on in there. You'll be right there in downtown Tuscaloosa. You can get you a great breakfast, uh, whether you like that uh, three-cheese omelet with ham, I can tell you firsthand. That is out of this world. The personal favorite is the shrimp and grits. I don't care if it's 7 o'clock in the morning or later in the day around 1 or 2. Uh, that's always a good go-to. And I say that because the shrimp and grits, even for breakfast, they're going to put a poached egg with some hollandaise sauce on there for you to go along with those shrimp and grits. And when you do the little magic there with the poached egg, or you do like I do, and you get it over medium, it all sort of just comes together perfectly. So many great options at Brick and Spoon. And look, if you want to go ahead and get a jump on the tailgate or the pregame, they got those outstanding Bloody Marys that are going to be ready to go for you Saturday morning, any morning at Brick and Spoon, downtown Tuscaloosa, at Timerson Square. also want to tell you about another great spot downtown uh, for game day, or any day for that matter, and that is at Heat Pizza Bar, right there at Government Plaza. Can't miss it. One of the great things, too, about Heat Pizza Bar is the Government Plaza parking garage is right there. So you've got parking easily accessible to you, makes it an even more attractive option when you talk about Heat Pizza Bar, downtown Tuscaloosa at Government Plaza, they got that full bar. You know, we talked with Frank about it on the podcast a couple weeks ago. One of the real undervalued aspects of the situation there at Heat Pizza Bar is that all those great 60-inch televisions are going to be on the games that you want to see throughout the day. So Heat Pizza Bar, for a number of reasons, another great spot for you this weekend Downtown Tuscaloosa, Heat Pizza Bar, 
right there in Government Plaza. You cannot beat Heat Pizza Bar at Government nope. Plaza. Uh, and I'll tell you something about Brick and I get reports that Brick and Spoon, Travis, is going to be handling the catering for ESPN's SEC Nation on Saturday. There you go. Uh, so uh, that, that tells you all you need to know, right? All the, hopefully, hopefully the the uh, the shrimp and grits are, are are a part of that. But if it's the beignets, if it's the French toast, if it's any of the great menu items there at Brick and Spoon, those folks are going to be uh, they're in for a real treat. Talking Tide podcast at Podbean.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. The Twitter feed, Talking Underscore Tide. Chase Goodbread and Travis Ryer with you for a few more minutes and. <sighs> Travis, do we want to talk about Tennessee, Kentucky, or do we do what? <laughs> or is it better to just kind of roll down memory lane with this Alabama LSU series? It's been such a fun. It's kind of look. Let's be honest. It's kind of replaced Alabama, Tennessee, and hate to say it, but the Iron Bowl too, in terms of historical competitiveness, has it not? Yeah, it's it's. You're right. In the '90s. It was, in the SEC anyway, it was Tennessee and Florida, no doubt about it. But when you go outside the SEC, even in the 80s, into the 90s, you know, there was a time when Florida State, Miami was absolute must-see television. Those two played this past Saturday. Nobody and watched. Who cared, right? It's yeah. amazing. It's amazing. Um, but that's kind of where it's at. But on the national level, you know, I think what's going to be interesting from the game Saturday is when CBS comes out with those overnight television ratings. And even in that 2.30 central slot, uh, I, I, I'm guessing that this one will blow away what Notre Dame and Georgia did in the primetime slot on CBS back in September. But, no, it's it's the regular season Super Bowl in college football right now. I don't think anybody would argue that, although – you know, Alabama has dominated this thing to the point over the last eight games that it could use sort of the exciting uh, playing out of the game that, that a lot of people are projecting. Because, I mean, when you look at LSU in this, in this, even in these last three games, LSU scored one touchdown in this series in the last three games. So uh, Tigers need to do their part on Saturday to make this thing a lot of fun. Couple of Alabama LSU games of the Nick Saban era that I want to run by you that that I think are I, I gotta I'm gonna put you on the spot, Travis, mm-hmm. on a couple of these games. I'm gonna take you back first to the 2007 Alabama LSU yeah. game in Tuscaloosa, Nick Saban's first season as head coach at Alabama. Early due set with a big touchdown catch late in the game that essentially clinched things for the Tigers and knocked Alabama out of the SEC West race. One of my memories as a B guy at that for coming out of that game was Nick Saban in the post-game presser when asked about that play when early set stuck it in the end zone to, to pretty much finish it. He complained, maybe complained isn't exactly the right word, but... Uh, he was bemoaned. Not, yeah, be, there you go. Bemoaned that <laughs> that Javier Arenas, who was face up with Doucette on that play, faked the blitz and should not have been faking the blitz. My question to you, and I've kind of always wondered this: uh, 
was Saban tossing Arenas under the bus for faking the blitz or, and kind of ad-libbing things, or was he hanging it more on Kevin Steele as if faking the blitz was baked into the call? Your, yeah. your opinion on, on that? Probably a little bit of both. I think ultimately, as Saban has said many times before, uh, he wants to know not just what happened, but why it happened, how it happened. And I'm sure Kevin Steele caught more of that on Sunday into Monday even than did Javier Arenas. And look, what I remember about that 2007 game, because I took it in from field level uh, that afternoon at Bryant-Denny Stadium, was looking at the two teams on the field, you remember the Alabama-Notre Dame game, obviously, uh, in the 2013 BCS National Championship game that capped the 2012 National Championship for Alabama. You remember seeing the Notre Dame players in comparison to the Alabama players and thinking, whoa, we got a little bit of a mismatch here just in terms of size and athleticism and all those things. Well, that's what LSU in 2007 looked like next to Alabama, probably even more so, especially by the time we got into early November of that season. And here's what I also remember. It's, it's interesting you mentioned Javier Arenas. His punt return for a touchdown in the second half of that game that put Alabama ahead, Chase, that still might be the loudest I've ever heard that stadium when Javier Arenas. Now, it may have been because I was on the field and it, it resonated more, uh, but when Javi ran the punt back against LSU in 2007, and that was in the days of, what, 80 thousand seat Bryant Denny Stadium. Uh, It's still something I I remember very vividly to this day. So uh, to answer your original question, I'm going to guess Kevin Steele caught a little bit more of that than did uh, than Javier Arenas. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you in the fire one more time before we get out of here on Crimson Cover. Uh, excuse me, on the Talk of Tide podcast. I that got, too. I got my platforms confused there. Just, just for a second, I got a couple of the juggle, you know. Southern Fried Talking Tide. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That rhymes. That yeah. sounds pretty good. So the 2011 Sugar Bowl, and yeah. we, we talked earlier in the podcast that out that. LSU knocked off Alabama 9-6 in the regular season that year, which was billed as game of the century. They come off that regular season game. They clash in the national title game in New Orleans, Sugar Bowl. A lot of good stories came out of that one. I'm going to contend, and I think most people look back at that game, Travis, and say that Trent Richardson – buried it with a late touch a fourth quarter touchdown that made the uh-huh. score 21 to nothing i'm gonna contend that that was not the play that buried that game i'm gonna tell you travis and you agree or disagree that jeremy shelley burying a 44 yard field yeah. goal to put ua up 15 nothing near the end of the third quarter that was the dagger and not richardson with the touchdown, agree or disagree? I'll do you one better. I think the Shelly field goal that made it nine to nothing was the dagger. <laughs> I mean, that made it a two-score game at that point, and it was extremely difficult as that game moved along to imagine LSU getting to ten. And that's how dominant that performance was from the Alabama defense. And lost in all of that was that LSU on the other side, as we saw firsthand here in Tuscaloosa. 
uh, earlier in that regular season was a defense for all time as well. Um, so yeah, I, I you know I'll go with you on Jeremy Shelley and uh, his performance. He ended up missing. He yeah, he, ended up, he, he 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 hit his field goals at some point, whether you thought it was nine nothing or or fifteen to nothing. Or twelve. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was one after another. And that was interesting because you recall this too. The forty-four yarder. There were a couple of forty-plus, I guess. You know, Kate Foster had obviously struggled, you know, with, with kicks against LSU uh, in that regular season matchup. And Shelley was pretty much the inside forty guy, thirty-nine and in extra points, those things. That was more of what they asked for, asked from of Shelley. But with Cade Foster's struggles, they stretched Shelley's range a little bit in that game, the second game against LSU, and yep. he responded. Actually, I think missed an extra point to end the game, but at that point, as we know, it uh, it was academic, as they say. Yeah, he, he actually had seven field goal attempts on the yeah. night. He had a 42-yarder that was blocked. He, he missed a 41-yarder, and as you mentioned, he missed the extra point on the back end of Richardson's fourth quarter touchdown, probably good thing for Alabama that he didn't get one blocked or miss a PAT early in the game. Cause you wouldn't want that in his head on a night when he needed to hit four or five field goals. Yeah. And, and, and he, it was very big, but um, what did LSU cross the 50 once the, the entire game yeah. in that one? I mean, it was just, yep. and I thought also in terms of Jim McElwain, performances as the offensive coordinator. I thought that was one of his best. He did some things early in the game with A.J. McCarron uh, to give him some easier throws, get him away from the pass rush a little bit. Got Brad Smelly involved a little bit on some boot action. Uh, and then Marquise Mays goes out of the game chase, and lo and behold, Kevin Norwood goes to work on the honey badger of all people, on some of those corner routes, and A.J. was just, AJ was really, really good. That was the arrival, no doubt about it, as of AJ McCarron as a starting quarterback at Alabama. Norwood went over the top of the Honey Badger. Yeah, two in that one. Yeah, no question. No, been a heck of a series. Been an amazing yeah. series of late, and uh, this Saturday will prove to be an extension of that. I'm sure that's going to do it for this edition of the Talking Tide podcast. For Travis Ryer of BamaOnline.com and Southern Fried Sports Radio, I'm Chase Goodbread of NFL.com and Crimson Cover Television. Be sure to join us for the Sunday Nighter this coming weekend. We'll recap Alabama LSU number one versus number two right here on Talking Tide. We'll talk to you then. <laughs>